Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tāmaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. As the power struggle between China and the United States intensifies, and questions of Chinese interference in New Zealand and the Pacific are raised in academic and political circles, journalist Richard McGregor fathoms the geopolitical climate and the balance of power in our region. McGregor has worked as a Financial Times correspondent in China and Washington. He wrote The Party, The Secret World of China's Communist Rulers, and Asia's Reckoning, The Struggle for Global Dominance. And he has a short book about Xi Jinping's China about to be published. He's in conversation with Corin Dan in a session supported by Hobson Levy Executive Search. We hope you enjoy it. So Richard, welcome. Thank you very much for being here. It's Thank great you. to have you. I want to start first with um, your most, late, uh, most recent book. And it struck me that when we talk a lot about um, the rise of China in particular in Asia over, the, over recent years, uh, and we think a lot about the trade war with uh, the US, the, the tariff war, this sort of stuff, it's very much in the context of um, China and the US and this great power struggle and how New Zealand's going to fit in. But your book is a great reminder that there's another player in Asia, and that is Japan, and that we need to also think about Japan in that context. Why is it so important that we think of the three of them? Um, thanks for that, and um, thanks for having, thanks for doing this. Thanks to Anne O'Brien and her team, um, and thanks for so many people for coming. Um, let, let me explain it this way. The, uh, you know, whenever I've lived in a lot of places around the world, if you go into a bookstore in Washington, you'll see there's a cottage industry of books about the US, China, US, Middle East. You go into a bookstore in the UK, it's about the UK and Europe, you know, UK, France, UK, Germany and the like. Uh, um, in Australia, it's probably Australia and Asia. In New Zealand, probably New Zealand and the Pacific. I guarantee in any of these stores, there's nothing about China and Japan, which is the world's second and third largest economies, two Asian superpowers, which have an extremely difficult and antagonistic uh, and bloody history. And if they were ever to sort of get involved in any kind of conflict, which they almost did in 2012, the entire global economy goes through these two countries along with Taiwan and South Korea. So I'm interested in not just in a sort of eat your broccoli sort of way. I mean, I found it really interesting. That's why I wrote it. But it is also uh, in, in very important. And it's also part of the, you know, the much bigger picture uh, in Asia, if I can just broaden it out. Um, you know, my general theme is that, you know, East Asia since the war, or North Asia, as we call it from here, is basically uh, an economic success, but a political failure. Uh, so what does that mean? You know, we've had um, uh, in East Asia since uh, the war, successive economic miracles, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, now China, the biggest of all of them. And that obviously has transformed uh, the economies of both our countries. Um, at the same time, that's happened while all these tectonic political uh, disputes have sort of been put in the icebox. So if you think about it, the Korean Civil War is not over. They're talking about it again at the moment, and of course failing. Uh, the Chinese Civil War is not over. You know, you hear a lot of talk now about whether China will invade Taiwan or something. Uh, the Sino-Japanese War, which was the biggest of all, uh, those two countries have an extremely antagonistic relationship still. So how do we have all these economic miracles, miracles with all these political issues? And the reason basically is America. 
You know, the, you know, the US has done a lot of dumb things, Iraq and all that sort of thing. One area where they've succeeded post-war is in keeping the peace in Asia, except that, you know, leave, let's leave aside Vietnam, generally. And um, the, um, no, but if you think about Middle Eastern wars and Asian wars, it's, it's not comparable, you know, because even Vietnam is another economic miracle these days and actually likes the US a lot. Um, but, um, so, but I, we're coming to the end of this Pax Americana. China was a huge beneficiary of this. In the 80s, when China was coming out of its shell, joining the market economy, uh, they didn't spend much money on the, their military. That's all changed. Yeah, I want to ask you about that yeah. because so uh, Japan clearly been, has benefited hugely because it hasn't had to spend on defence uh, and has became, it became a, a global economic superpower, much to the annoyance in your book, you detail um, the US's annoyance and some tensions there. But this time around with China, as it becomes a global economic superpower, it has also got, what, the military, potentially the military and, and um, political uh, grunt that Japan didn't have. That's right. I mean, Japan became what they called an economic giant and a political pygmy. Uh, China's going to be an economic giant and a political giant and a military giant. You know, it's quite amazing if you look at... Um, you know, you can get the satellite photos of the Chinese shipyards. You know, there's about 15 new frigates about to come off the, you know, out of the out of the docks. The third aircraft carrier. China will very soon have the biggest navy in the world. It doesn't mean the best navy in the world because they've got to learn how to use it. So the days of the U.S. controlling uh, the region are basically melting in front of our eyes. Um, but it's difficult though because you've got. To, you know, can China take America's place uh, in Asia? If you think about it, China has territorial disputes with Japan. Uh, Taiwan is a big one. Um, uh, uh, the Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Brunei. Um, that's on the maritime side, leaving aside India. So can China just slip into this role that the US has played in Asia for 70 years? The answer, obviously, is no. Does it want to? Well, it doesn't want to immediately, actually. I'd say it would like to in the longer term. But this is one of the funny things about the current US-China uh, fight. You know, I think China would obviously, and why wouldn't they, big country, of course they want to be the dominant power. There's nothing surprising or in, you know, insidious, intrinsically insidious about that. Um, but um, that, that they can't easily do it. I think they, they don't want the US to leave Asia quickly because that would be destabilizing. I think China would kind of like the US to go into a sort of, you know, bourgeois decline, you know, and slowly sort of drift back to the other side of the Pacific. But that, you know, we don't quite know how it's going to play out. Well, that's interesting because it, that might have looked that way, but Trump has come along and he's... So, so where does his change in strategy come in with this end of uh, Pax Americana? Well, you know, as we all know, Trump couldn't care less about it. You know, I mean, America first, we saw in his campaign, he doesn't really value alliances. He's not really interested in American troops and forward deployment. Um, you know, he'd probably bring people home tomorrow. So that's one of the ironies of him taking on China. He's all about trade. That's his, been his, his obsession since the 1980s. You know, he thinks America is getting screwed twice. Once on trade, <clears throat> and the second time in paying for the defense of countries like Japan and South Korea. Um, but the rest of the US system, though, uh, probably supports Trump on trade, 
but they do believe in the rest of the, the story. They do believe in trying to maintain the US presence out in the, the Asia-Pacific area. So the, you know, the, the American policy, frankly, is very contradictory. Uh, it's very contradict schizophrenic in another fashion. You know, Trump, for example, wants, uh, on the one hand, he's pressing China to open its markets so the US and other companies can get a better go in the China market. The other side of Trump is pull it, let's, he's, he wants to pull everything out of China and bring it back to the US. So there's really working at uh, cross purposes, actually. Let's go there on the, on the Trump tariff stuff of, of late, while, we, while we're at this point. How worried are you that there's going to be a miscalculation here? That there seems to be this massive game going on where Trump's pushing them as far as he can. You get the sense that the stock market is a big factor in his thinking. He's trying to pump up the US economy ahead of the elections. He's going to push China as hard as he can. You think, oh, surely he's going to want to get that deal and therefore um, you know, he, can, he can parade that and get the glory and, and, and win his election. It could go wrong though, couldn't it? Well, it's very hard to judge the domestic politics. On the one hand, in the states, for example, all the, the uh, states that won him the election, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, uh, and the like, um, no candidate is going to run on a platform of let's make up with China uh, you know, in 2020. And to be fair, it's not just Trump, is it? No. There is a deep-seated uh, anti-China sentiment on an economic sovereignty level in, in America, isn't there? Um, there is, there is, but I think there's, you know, now that the tariffs are taking bite, you know, that really hurts them in farm states. Uh, so far, they're standing by Trump, we'll see. Uh, it's very hard to, to know what will happen, but I think for Trump, the China issue is kind of like the foreign policy version of the Mexican wall. No matter what happens, he just keeps finding a way to throw it out there and keep it in play because he, think it, he thinks it works for him. But we'll see what impact if we get a sustained trade war. And remember, the problem with Trump is uh, tariffs for him, you know, some of us might think it's a kind of negotiating tactic and actually probably a pretty good one. He did genuinely rattle the Chinese, but I think many people are realizing now it's not a negotiating tactic. You know, they're, they're an end in themselves. He wants them, he likes them. But if the economy starts tanking in the US before the election next year, then maybe there will be a real calculation to get a deal. In your view, from your time in Asia, is there actually some justification in the US pushing back against China, that China had abused its power in terms of intellectual property, these sorts of issues? Should the West actually be pushing back on an economic level. We'll get to the politics a bit later. Yes, I mean, I, I, you know, I wouldn't go through every little complaint that the US has, but absolutely. Um, um, and that's not to demonise China or anything like that. It's, you know, it's just a different economic system. Uh, it's, you know, economic output is not dominated by state companies, but the state does dominate the economy. Uh, and the like. It's mainly run according to regulations, administrative measures rather than law. It's, it's not opaque at all. Um, so the kind of complaints that Trump has are the same complaints that the Europeans have and that the Japanese have. Uh, Australia and New Zealand are a bit different, we can come to that. But pr Trump's problem is that he likes to do everything bilaterally, so he's fighting Europe, fighting Japan and fighting China, whereas Europe and Japan would like to join with Trump uh, and to put pressure on China. Um, so that's another reason why it's sort of falling flat. How's China reacting so far, in your view, to Trump's push? Uh, if you read reports today, it's, it's China that pulled the rug out at the last minute on the negotiations, um, that they were the ones who pushed for a change, and then Trump got upset. But 
how do you think they're going to react? They've got a domestic political audience they've got to deal with too, don't they? Well, that's fascinating, and it is hard to read, but it is, I think it's pretty well confirmed now that there was a 150-page uh, uh, draft agreement. Um, the Americans were waiting for the Chinese to come back with their changes, and they came back to them, and it was about 70 pages long. And so all manner of commitments by China to do this, that, and the other, uh, in other words, to change their laws uh, to accommodate US demands were thrown out. And that decision could only have been taken by Xi Jinping, given the level of his power in the system at the moment. Now, why did he do that? Was he personally affronted that he thought this was humiliating with China and with the way that humiliation in front of foreigners resonates uh, in China? Or was he forced to do it? You know, was the, the conservative sort of the leftist wing in Chinese politics? Uh, he didn't think this would be sellable within China itself. You know, China has domestic politics, even though it's hard to see. Uh, did she miscalculate that um, by cutting a lot of these things out of the agreement, Trump would cop it rather than respond as he did and putting on the tariffs? Uh, it's very hard to tell, you know, but um, the work that I'm working on at the moment, you know, inside China, you don't see it. There's a lot of criticism of Xi Jinping and there's certainly a lot of criticism of him about how he's handled the US. Uh, you know, he's pushed China too far. He's given the US a, a, an excuse to push back. Uh, Trump and Xi will meet, I think, at the G20 in June in Tokyo. Uh, so let's see how they go. But it, it, it could, I mean, it's a long-run thing, the US-China rivalry anyway, but we could be getting a real crunch point. Let's talk about President Xi. Um, four or five years ago, when I was travelling to China with uh, Prime Minister John Key, there was a great sense that China was still uh, opening up. There was this idea that it was on this path to liberalisation, that it was going to slowly, as it became more economically powerful, would open up in terms of democracy and these sorts of things, and a great sense that we all were going to benefit. And yet, in the last two or three years, we hear increasingly reports that uh, President Xi is becoming far more authoritarian in the way he is running China, that it is becoming harder to get visas, that it is becoming much harder for, for, for I guess, dissent in China. What, 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 what changed? Well, I guess, you know, Xi Jinping is, you know, the, it's, it's fascinating because when he came to power in 2012, in theory, he was the compromise candidate, the party elders. He wasn't part of the, either of the two big factions at the top. Um, and I wonder if they're pretty surprised at what they got. Uh, his anti-corruption uh, campaign is just, if you, the, ex the number of people he's taken on and basically wiped out, you know, big power centres, big centres of power in the energy industry, in the security industry, all sorts of people. Nobody has ever done what he's done on anti-corruption. That gets you enemies, by the way. Uh, you know, China traditionally has had a sort of tightening cycle, a loosening cycle. The old idea about Xi in his first term that he was turning left so he could turn right. I think even people in our country could understand that, right? Because you play to the base, satisfy them, and then your second term you move back to the centre. He hasn't done that. So this is, there's no loosening cycle, it's just a tightening cycle. A lot of activists have all been locked up. We've got the internment camps in uh, Xinjiang. Outwardly, China has been much more assertive, much more quickly than many people thought it would be. And of course, the, the big daddy is the fact that he abolished term limits. And I think that's one thing that really made the sort of 
small L liberals, such as they are in China, so angry? What does he want? What does what is his vision for China? What, where does he want to see China? Well, it's a great question. What does he want? Um, the, uh, in theory, he wants the China dream. And this is a sort of a staggered program that goes out to 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the People's Republic. Uh, some of his goals are utterly uh, laudable. You know, his first target is to eradicate po poverty, poverty in 2021. Um, but, you know, I think he, you know, obviously China wants uh, respect, a, a place at the table, national dignity. It wants the economy to keep growing. That's obviously a big um, question mark over that to a degree. I'm relatively bullish. He wants all of that. He wants to reclaim so-called lost territories. That's the South China Sea. There's uh, India uh, and the like. Um, but do you do this? by making China more authoritarian. China is a big, complex society these days. Is it really going to work? And to keep, in, and why is he staying on? He probably thinks he's red nobility. He's the only person who can get this done. Uh, let me give you one other reason why he's staying on, and this is a much darker, cynical reason. Uh, he has so many enemies now. He has locked so many people up for corruption, not just rivals. You know, I'm not saying these people are clean skins that he might be worried if he stepped down, uh, somebody might start going after him as well. So for him to really stay in power and complete his program, he, he clearly feels he has to stay in office as well. On the economy, okay, so, I mean, the great story of China right is that over the last 20, 30 years, 250, 300 million people have been raised into middle, to be middle class. Does he still, how dependent is he on their economic fortunes and the continuation of that process? Yeah, I think the party is, I mean, there's two legs to party legitimacy. It's national unity, national sovereignty, but also much more importantly, the economy. Um, you know, the Chinese leaders like to say, the Chinese Communist Party has lifted six to 700 million people out of poverty. But you can just as easily reverse that and say, 600 and 700 million Chinese, hardworking Chinese, Chinese have lifted themselves out of poverty once the party started to get out of the way. Now, both those, formulations are tendentious in their own way. But, you know, the economy is the big issue. I'm, you know, I think the Chinese economy will keep growing. I'm not sure the current figure of 6.5 is real or not. It might be a bit less than that. But they can grow at 4 or 5% and create enough jobs to, to manage, you know. And I've, but I think the crunch starts to come in five or five years or so. The uh, working population in China has been shrinking since 2013. It's going to really go into free fall uh, in a few years. The, uh, the, the tossing out of the one-child policy has not increased birth rates. You know, Shanghai has the birth rate of Italy. You know, they're not going to sort of grow the population again. Um, you know, China's one of the things in the favour of the Chinese economy is just about all their debt. It's all local debts, all in renminbi. They haven't got, it's not like the Asian financial crisis, they haven't got a lot of US dollar debt. So they can manage the financial system, there'll be problems, they'll grow slower. But I think once the population starts to shrink rapidly, once the savings pool dries up so they no longer have the big bazooka to just throw money at a problem, that's when things get much and tougher. And do you see, uh, so what we're seeing at the moment with these trade tariff tensions and Trump's this push to sort of decouple the US from China, this relationship of exports and imports and the American consumer that's done well out of the deflation, right, from, from the cheaper Chinese goods, but that's, that, that's going to change. 
Can they decouple, and, and what impact will that have on the world economy? Well, this is the great sort of it's a, sort of an inelegant word, decoupling, but it's actually the, the big theme of our times. You know, when you and I grow up, have been growing up, you know, the big, we've had the East Asian logistics sort of supply chain. Everything's become intertwined uh, in East Asia, and we've fed into that and the like, and then the goods have gone back out to America and Europe. So two things are happening. First of all, America and Europe aren't going to be the biggest consumers anymore, so they're going to be selling into Asia. But even more important than that is that because the US regards China as a rival for all manner of reasons, they want to get certain technologies, certain manufacturing capabilities, certain companies, they want to get them out of China on national security grounds so that the global supply chain or part of it no longer goes through China. That's what decoupling is. That's what the fight about Huawei is. Uh, China is doing the same thing, incidentally, to, because they don't want to be reliant on the US for technology. Um, and so really the world is, in front of our eyes, breaking into two tech blocks. Uh, and that process is, you know, with the Huawei issue, is starting to be well underway. Right, and this is fascinating because we're seeing America's allies not necessarily siding with America. So uh, what with Germany, the UK are saying they're okay with a bit of Huawei. New Zealand, despite the fact that it was initially thought we had a ban, hasn't fully banned, still has to make a decision whether, whether it will allow Spark to use some Huawei technology. That's a bit strange that they're not all backing the US yet. No, um, you know, I think the Huawei issue's got a long way to run. Um, there's a number of things happening there. I mean, a country like Australia, actually well before America, um, effectively banned them without saying as much. Uh, I think, you know, and I can't speak for New Zealand, um, but I think, you know, New Zealand would, might be very attracted to what the UK model is, which, you know, in which is specialist tech engineers um, uh, look at all the Huawei gear before it goes into the system uh, to check it. But that would be a massive... I mean, is that, if, if those two blocks are splitting along technological lines, for, the, for Germany and the UK to not go with the US could have big ramifications. Yeah, well, our, UK is the big one because that's part of the 5 Eye intelligence network. You know, the GCHQ is only second to the NSA in terms of uh, electronic sort of, you know, omnivorous electronics eavesdropping. Um, and New Zealand is part of that. So, I, you know, the UK at the moment, frankly, the UK politics, 70% Brexit, 20% Russia, 10% the rest. I, I think that it's a long way to go before the UK takes that on. They'll be under heavy pressure. Uh, and if the UK does keep Huawei out, then I think New Zealand will be, whether you like it or not, uh, will be under heavy pressure as well. For China, you know, Huawei is proving to be a great issue because they're splitting the West. They would love to split Australia and New Zealand and isolate Australia. Um, so I think New Zealand's been trying to thread the needle on that, but um, the, the trouble is that sooner or later you have to make a choice. Okay, if we have to make a choice, what would be the ramifications? Let's start with the US and we'll get to China. So for you, if we were to take on some Huawei technology, how do you think the US would respond? Um, you know, it's hard to know what they would do. I mean, you know, in some ways New Zealand should uh, do what it wants to do. You've, you've lived 
uh, uh, a prosperous life, having been cut out of Anzus for a few years. But would year. they cut us out of the Five Eyes? Uh, I don't know. You, you've only been back in, I don't know how many years now you've been back in. I, I think there would be some ramifications, yeah. I, I don't know for sure, but I, I, think, I think that's pretty clear. But, you know, but if the UK is doing it, the UK is the America's biggest intelligence partner, um, most important one, uh, most, you know, deep set. So I think the UK is the, the one to watch. And China. So when this initially, uh, New Zealand initially came out and made some noises that it wasn't too keen on using the Huawei technology, there seemed to be all of a sudden a flurry of diplomatic debate here that China was pushing back and that we were suddenly going to be snubbed and Jacinda Ardern couldn't get a visit to China. She's now had that. But uh, clearly China will put some pressure on, right? Oh, yes. Well, absolutely. Um, don't worry. We're well ahead of you in terms of that. We haven't had a visit to China for about two and a half years from a prime minister. And I, I think, you know, we'll see what happens with the election tomorrow. Let's speak on the assumption that Labor wins. Uh, you know, Labor is saying it won't visit the Huawei decision. Um, you know, Australia, in theory, had a reset and a make-up with China, but actually, we're actually back in the icebox again. Um, I know that for a fact and because uh, China wants the Huawei decision revisited in Australia. Um, so you'll be under heavy pressure from China. I, I, I think, quite frankly, that uh, you know, most people in Australia expect some form of economic coercion from China uh, at some stage. You know, China does this. They're quite open about it. Um, they want to punish you. Uh, they do it publicly because they want the citizens of the country to know they're being punished. There's a cost for standing up to China. So I certainly think um, in, in Australia's case, people are braced for that uh, to happen at some stage, and we'll see how tough we are then, actually, when, if people actually start losing their jobs. But does, okay, let's talk about that then, uh, the economic dependence idea that New Zealand and Australia, what we're sending... At some points, New Zealand's been sending 20% plus of its exports to China. We start to become pretty dependent. I know Australia is similar. How dangerous would it be economically if... Would, could China just turn off the tap, for example? On well, yes and no. Um, you know, actually, we're more... I, I never use the word dependent, right? I always say we're interdependent, because if you decide psychologically you're dependent on China, then your foreign policy becomes nothing more than a kind of cascading series of concessions to them. So I say interdependent. You know, China doesn't buy uh, uh, New Zealand dairy to be nice to you. Um, they want the best product at the best price. You know, they're very pragmatic. The same goes for iron ore and the like in Australia. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're more interdependent than you. I think our, you know, we're, along with South Korea, we're the highest. About 35, 37% of our exports go to China. Um, so, yes, uh, uh, could, could China turn off the tap? You know, the countries that are really worried about China eating their lunch right now are industrial economies like South Korea and Germany, because China is catching up to them in industrial technologies, manufacturing technologies. Uh, you know, maybe semiconductors, they're starting to get up there, um, advanced cars, electric cars. So they're really worried. Australia and New Zealand still have this odd advantage, I think, and is we remain complementary to the Chinese economy. We, do, we sell them stuff they don't, aren't going to get at home and aren't going to be able to get at home. So in some respects, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic on that in that respect that 
the economic relationship uh, sh should remain strong. Now, I could be wrong, but... Um they can have, uh, one of the things we saw though was, you know, they have a huge buying power. So for a country like New Zealand with dairy um, and infant milk powder, these sort of things, there was a huge run up in prices in 2014 and it was a gold rush and, all, and China was the buyer and then all of a sudden it stopped and the prices went through the floor and our farmers are in trouble all of a sudden. So there's a, there's a dangerous interdependence there, isn't there? Well, I, but I, I guess there is and that hopefully means, uh, you know, eventually I don't think the Chinese government wants that sort of thing to happen in China. I think they would hope over time there'd be a more rational market, that the speculative level aspect of the price gets wiped out and that there's normal trade. You know, they don't want that. Uh, the same goes with, you know, the resources trade as well. Um, and I think that the, you know, it's the price, you know, eventually should reflect the demand. I mean, there's, there's going to be volatility, volatility, there is risk, but the upside is enough, I think. Sure. All right, let's, let's have a look at the geopolitics then. Uh, the South China Sea seems to be the, uh, the flashpoint and certainly New Zealand has uh, walked a careful line there, but arguably softer on China than Australia in language. Um, We're not, but you're nicer than us. <laughs> well, it's as if, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it has changed a little bit under this current government in that uh, we've seen uh, Winston Peters and Ron Mark, the Defence Minister, with some tougher language around that, and there was some blowback around that as well. Are we right, as New Zealand, right to be perhaps pushing back a little harder on what we're seeing with the uh, construction of these uh, islands and you know, military installations on, on the islands uh, in the South China Sea? Yeah, well, you know, quite frankly, I'm loath to offer advice to New Zealand, uh, particularly as an Australian. I know you shouldn't do that. Um, uh, but Winston Peters, you know, to me has been a bit of a, uh, a surprise in a positive way as foreign minister. Now, I don't follow things day to day here, so you'll have far, far more nuanced views about that. But the speech he made at the Lowy Institute in Sydney, where I think he talked about that, about China, about the Pacific in particular, um, was, was you know, very, very good. Um, you know, I think the, in terms of Australia and New Zealand working together, uh, obviously the Pacific, and in Australia's case in particular, Papua New Guinea, uh, are extremely important. You know, we had in theory, I don't know whether you called it this in New Zealand as well, the Pacific step up uh, around the time of the APEC meeting where all manner of uh, initiatives were announced. Um, you know, new money for the Pacific, uh, the electrification of 70 to 80% of Papua New Guinea, massive commitments. And, you know, in my view, Australia often makes a uh, big announcement about the Pacific and then they think they've fixed things and they forget about it. Well, you can't do that anymore um, uh, because there's a competition there and we have to compete. Uh, and we shouldn't undersell, I think, you know, our, our ability to do that in the Pacific. But there are kind of problems generally in the Pacific for both Australia and New Zealand. These, these countries don't generally grow. So they've got, some of them, a lot of debt. They don't all grow out of that debt. Uh, and we've got to be careful about throwing extra money in there, particularly in forms of grant aid, because we might end up sort of funding their budgets to service Chinese debt and the like. So, um, you know, I think we have to be, you know, be hard-headed and very careful about how we approach that. And, of course, there's the Belt and Road, which is this huge vision of uh, President Xi's for development and infrastructure through this maritime road and, and overland belt, is it, that's the right way around. Um, 
where does that fit in? Because it does, initially, the, the last New Zealand, uh, the national government signaled they were interested, a memorandum of understanding. Winston Peters came in, then suddenly he goes cold on the whole thing and wanted to, offended the Chinese by, well, arguably offended the Chinese by saying he wanted more information and told them to sort of go away and come back with some info, and I don't think they like that. And now it looks as though, under, with David Parker, the trade minister, he's signalling that, yes, we will do sign up to this Belt and Road. Is that significant? Um, I think, yeah, I think it is. The, I mean, it does look, as you say, from what David Parker said, that New Zealand will, will do that. Um, I mean, I, I thought David Parker, if I read an interview with him correctly, sort of, you know, sort of, you know, what does New Zealand get that it wouldn't get by signing Belton Road? You know, what kind of investment do you get that you wouldn't get? Um, in, and in which case, why do you sign it? And you sign it because it promotes good relations with China. Yeah, it's I a bit of low-hanging fruit, isn't it? That, that's right. And I, I suspect that if the Labor Party gets into power, maybe actually if the coalition returns in Australia, they might to do, do something on Belton Road as well. Maybe not a, an MOU or something like that, but it's a way to sort of play in the Chinese system and get yourself back at the, ta at the table. I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about uh, Chinese uh, political influence on countries like New Zealand and Australia, inside New Zealand and Australia. We've seen Anne-Marie Brady's um, work, which has had a lot of prominence and raising concerns about the influence of the Chinese Communist Party on the diaspora, on the, on the Chinese communities in New Zealand and, and Australia. Um, should we be concerned uh, about that? Um, well, I would say yes. Um, you know, it's, it's a real issue. Uh, it's not a secret that, um, you know, the party state, the Communist Party, uh, tracks its communities closely, uh, sees them, uh, has, thinks they have value uh, in the debates in their home countries. Um, I, I can't, I mean, I know Anne-Marie, and she's uh, an excellent scholar. I can't speak in detail about the situation in New Zealand, but I imagine it's a little bit similar to Australia. The, um, you know, why does every Chinese language newspaper in Australia all absolutely mimic Beijing's line? You know, that's not all because they suddenly started to think the same way. There's certain incentives for them to behave in that way. Um, uh, should we worry about that? Yeah, I kind of think we should worry about that. It's a difficult debate to have, though, because you don't want to uh, target a community. Uh, you know, in a country like Australia, we've got a very xenophobic history. Uh, you've got to be very careful about how you do this. Um, and it's also difficult because, in some cases, uh, community groups and the like are incentivized to behave like that. In other cases, people may be simply proud of the achievements of uh, the PRC over the past 50 to 70 years. And how do you un unpick all of that? In, in Australia's case, um, there was some, a pretty blatant example of you know, money changing hands and people changing opinions, uh, changing their opinions on the South China Sea. Is that uh, widespread? Um, probably not anymore, because the authorities are looking at it very closely. But I, I think it, you know, it, it's, an, it's an ongoing and extremely difficult issue. Coming back to the uh, trade picture in Japan, which is, you know, you know, features so strongly in your book, um, the TPP, I wonder, that was hugely controversial, New Zealand signing of that, the CPTPP it is now called. Um, how significant is that in, t in terms of uh, a counterbalance to 
China, both China's rise, but also obviously with the US not there. So is Japan actually taking a lead here? Are they, do they deserve some credit? Uh, totally. You know, one of the problems with the TPP, and I'm going to put myself in this uh, same category, is that uh, we've all lauded it. Very few people have read it. <laughs> but, the, um, but there's no doubt as a political symbol it's very important. You know, let's face it, the Japanese have always been foot draggers on trade. Uh, particularly on agriculture. Uh, under Abe, that's changed. Um, so the idea that the Japanese could be taking the lead in trade, even 10 years ago, you would never have thought that. But the resuscitation of TPP into something, I've now forgotten what it's called, um, the, the new version, uh, is, was a great political triumph. I think Japan, Australia and New Zealand were the leading countries which pulled that together. Uh, and it sits out there as, a, you know, even the Chinese might like to join it, that would be the ultimate irony, because this was a US initiative, US-Japanese initiative, and the US stays out, and the Chinese join. I mean, Australian and New Zealand companies already get large value out of the TPP compared to their US competitors, and the US farmers and the like complain about that bitterly. So I think it, ha it has been quite successful. But if you tried to pin me down on a line-to-line -line justification for it and the IPR, IPR implications and then investor state stuff, then I'd probably fall apart. I think it's wise to stay away from that debate. Mm. Um, the, I want to know, though, about Japan. What is its thinking at the moment? Where does it, where does it position itself at the moment? I gather relations are pretty frosty with China, but... Trump signalled, and you, you make this point right at the end of your book, that uh, you know he's had a bit of a go at Japan too for, for what he calls free riding and wants to have a go at them too. So where do they position themselves and what do they want? Yeah, so Japan is, is interesting. You know, the um, uh, Sino-Japanese relations actually have calmed down a bit, um, but the, you know, they, there's a lot, not much trust there, but they've got the working relationship up and she will go to Japan twice this year, so that's kind of a big deal. But in the longer term, you know, it, Japan sits, sort of cuts off China from the Pacific, along with Taiwan. Uh, Japan has a very close relationship with Taiwan. Um, and, you know, the, look at Abe and Trump, the way that Trump forces people to behave. You know, the Japanese know they cannot handle China on their own. They have to stick with the US. Uh, people generally forget that Japan is the, America's biggest bilateral military ally. There's more troops, American troops in Japan than any other country in the world. Uh, but look at what, what Abe, every time Trump is going to take a decision which affects Japan, Abe rushes off to Washington uh, and tries to talk into Trump's ear for as long as he can, you know, gives him a gift. I think he gave him a gold-plated golf driver um, to... Um, <laughs> to try and just keep Trump on the straight and narrow. And so I think Abe has been a great diplomat for Japan in Southeast Asia, but in East Asia, Japan is isolated. Partly its own fault, mismanagement of history issues, extremely poor relations with South Korea, and now Abe is having to go to North Korea if he can, and the North Koreans, of course, will screw him over for a lot of money. They're changing their constitution, although they were certainly trying to a couple of years ago, where they could allow some military... Well, what they did is they couldn't change it because it would have failed, so they did the loyally thing of reinterpreting it, um, and that allows them, their military, you know, they've got a pacifist constitution which was imposed on them by America after the war. You shouldn't ever forget Japan and the US are very close, but nationalist Japanese like Abe 
still deeply resent America because they think America gave them this dud constitution because they lost the war. Never forget that. That sentiment stays with you for a long time. Because America used to bash them over trade, because America opened relations with China without ever asking them. This is a lot, and also because they're still a sort of supplicant state in many respects with the US. So there is a bit of boiling resentment there, but they really need the US. Um, and um, that's why in many respects, you know, historically everybody would always come to Japan and complain, you know, economic giant, politically, political pygmy. They would say, come on, you've got to spend more on your military, do more, you know. And the Japanese would say, oh, I'm sorry, we can't. You gave us this constitution, you know, pacifists. Um, and these days it's the Amer Japanese pressing the Americans to do more, you know. So it, the, it's really flipped. You know, Japan wants America in the Pacific. Japan wants the US military there um, uh, uh, because they need them. Could, uh, how would China react if, if Japan was to start militarising a little bit more than it has been? Well, they complain about it, but, you know, compared to the increase in expenditure of the Chinese military, it, it runs a little bit hollow. Um, they do have the ongoing dispute over the Senkaku Diayu Islands. Uh, uh, Japan has to be, have a very disciplined relationship with Taiwan because China gets angry about that. Uh, China has been, you know, I think Japanese fighter jets have scrambled 150 times in the last 12 months. A little bit is that to do with Russia, but it's mainly to do with China. So China is constantly testing Japanese military defences. Uh, it sends a lot of submarines through Japan, or not in the territorial waters, but near Japan, out into the ocean. So Japan is under constant pressure from China. And Japan is in a similar situation uh, to Australia, maybe New Zealand a little bit. Australia is spending more on defence. But for us to fund our defence budgets, uh, to defend ourselves against China, uh, we need the Chinese economy to thrive so we can, you know, get the money, you know. <laughs> so that's either a vicious or a virtuous circle. Uh, and Japan is very much in the same, uh, you know, situation. And decoupling, that terrible word to come back to that, Japan hates that, right, because they're totally locked into the East Asian sort of logistics supply chain. And they don't want to have to unwind it under American pressure. Is their economy in reasonable shape? Yeah, I mean... You know, Japan is amazing that I think it's losing 250,000 people a year now, but the economy still grows. Um, you know, our economy grows, two-thirds of our, our economic growth is from immigration. It's just inputs. They're losing people and still growing, so that's quite remarkable. So that's a real productivity story that many other economies can't boast of. All right, we're just coming up to, uh, we've got about 15 minutes to go, so I would encourage anyone out there, there are microphones at the front here, if you've got any questions, to sort of make your way forward, and I'll just keep, we'll keep going, and if I see anybody there, I'll throw to you. Um, so where are the optimism levels at the moment in terms of uh, Asia, given what's going on? We, it, it's hard when you, uh, I've been getting up at 3.45 every morning, flicking on the uh, cable news channels, Markets, you know, start of the week, it's uh, crashed on tariffs, and the rest, end of the week, things seem, Trump's tweeted, and now everything's all right again. It seems incredibly unstable at the moment. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, the, um, uh, the, if the tariffs stay, they'll affect both Chinese growth and US economic growth, um, and that's bad for, for all of us, actually, and, and you'll feel it and we'll feel it. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. 
You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.